Hi, Doxology. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle, and I'm a member here. Uh, and I'll be reading the uh, sermon scripture for tonight. Um, tonight, we are going to be reading Psalm 110. So I invite you to turn to your Bibles, um, turn your Bibles to that Psalm. Uh, you can also turn to your phone um, for that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles for you. There's some in the back of the pews in front of you. They're the light blue ones. Uh, we also have uh, a stack of them up front for you. To, so feel free to grab one of those. That is our gift to you. Uh, again, we'll be reading Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Amen. Hey, Doxology Church, it's good to be with you all this evening. My name is Daniel Dixon. Uh, we, my bride, Shelly Dixon, is here with our first daughter, Evelyn Grace, and we're expecting our second child. Don't know the gender yet. Um, in a month. And so, hey, we're delighted to be with you this evening. Uh, man, Steve and I, I, I know each other actually like probably like three or four years up until this point. We got reconnected when uh, we moved back here to the Washington, D.C. area to plant a church. And so, Steve, brother, thank you for inviting our family to preach God's word and to worship Christ with you all this evening. And so, hey, before we dive into God's word, man, let us pray one more time and uh, we'll hang out in Psalm 110. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're sitting on your throne as we speak. There's no one and nothing that can dethrone you. You're positioned there for all of eternity because of your son. In light of what we just heard, we've been invited to be citizens, co-heirs, children of that kingdom. Which means we can rest. Rest in the finished work of Christ. We don't have to find our identity in anything else. We don't have to try to attempt to find satisfaction, fulfillment, worth in this creation, but we can find all those things in the Creator. So would you meet us here this evening? We pray that Christ would be exalted through the singing of your word, through the preaching of your word, through the praying of your word. We want people to worship Christ. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be honoring to you, my rock and my redeemer, and all God's people said, amen, amen. So hey, just take a second, think through what possibly might be your favorite song. 
or maybe your favorite verse in the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms, so you've got a lot to choose from. And if you're new to Christianity or it's your first time you find yourself in a, in a gathering of the church, just open the Bible to the middle and pick whatever song shows up. I bet you some of you may have landed at Psalm 1 as one of your favorite psalms. Blessed is the man who plants himself by the streams. Or maybe Psalm 8, how majestic is your name? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 51, David's famous psalm of repentance. Maybe Psalm 136, where we see over and over again, 26 times where the psalmist says, your steadfast love endures forever. Not sure what drew you to that psalm or what introduced you to that psalm, but man, those are great psalms to memorize, to meditate on, to obey, to worship Christ out of. But if we were to take that same question and apply that question to the New Testament, New Testament, what's your, what's your favorite psalm? Because the New Testament speaks, it would say Psalm 110. The New Testament quotes Psalm 110 over 24 times. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of Scripture. And all of Scripture points to and exalts King Jesus. Every line of Scripture is about our Messiah, Christ. And so to sum up this psalm, the psalm that we'll be finding ourselves in this evening, Psalm 110, it can be summed up in this one sentence. Worship the Messiah who sits at the right hand of God. That all of creation, we have been created to worship. We are worshipers. That's who God's made us to be. And so we are to worship the Messiah who sits at the right hand. And every psalm that was written was written with the intent to be sung with a posture of worship. Regardless of what kind of category of psalm we find ourselves in, there's five major categories of the psalms. We have a a psalm of lament. We have psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of wisdom. And in this category, which we find ourselves in Psalm 110, is a royal psalm. So to sum up Psalm 110, worship the Messiah who sits at the right hand of the Father. And to kind of show you my cards this evening, to, to, to sum up this entire sermon, it can be summed up in this way. Worship the Messiah, who is the true and better king, priest, and warrior. Worship the Messiah, who is the true and better king, priest, and warrior. And so what we'll see in in this text from verses 1 through 3, we'll see that Christ, the Messiah, is a victorious king. Verse 4 shows us that we have a forever priest. The the Messiah is a forever priest. And in verses 5 through 7, the Messiah is a mighty warrior. 
So just before we dive into this text, here's what you need to know about a royal psalm. Is that royal psalms are mostly kingly or kingship. They, they describe this future king. And the reason why we need royal psalms is that we need to find our hope in this future king whose reign does not end. And the best way to understand royal psalms is its content, not so much its structure. Amen? Awesome. So point one, verses one through three, we see that Jesus, the Messiah, is a victorious king. Let's read it again. Verses one through three. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Until I make your enemies your footstool, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning to the dew. uh, The dew of your youth will be yours. So from this, these three verses, we see that Jesus is a is a victorious king. And we know that from the understanding of this, this scripture that the, the, the composer is David, King David. Oftentimes we see David as the subject of Psalms, but this time he's not the subject, he's the composer. The subject of this psalm is Christ the Messiah. However you way you want to look at this psalm, from front to back, from side to side, it is about Jesus, the Messiah. And so look at verse 1. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. He's saying, Yahweh says to, to, to Jesus, to Christ, sit at my right hand. The Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand. And when you and I hear this phrase, sit at my right hand, it, it, it's different than the way that David would have heard it. Like if we were to go to a dinner party after this service and someone would have just walked up to you and you say, hey, come sit at my right hand, we probably wouldn't think much of it. Like even if we even heard that in the room, we would say, oh, cool, he just wants to sit next to him. But the way this phrase, sit at my right hand, lands on the ears of the people in Israel differently culturally so like in david's day for that to be said at a dinner party every eye would have turned to who that sit at my right hand was said to and they would have been locked and fixed on that person because it means something so it's it's a it's an invitation of honor it's an invitation of privilege it's an invitation of authority and so that's what the Father is doing here in verse 1 of Psalm 110. He says, the Father says to his son, sit at my right hand. He's telling his son, hey, I want you to sit in this place of honor. And it's not just a place of honor, but it's the highest place of honor. And the Father has designated this seat, the seat at the right hand for his son only. And David's aim at penning this psalm is to show his people, hey man, although I'm your earthly king, although I'm an okay earthly king, there is a future king who is greater than me. There's a king to come that is far better than me. And so for that reason, 
fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on, on, on the Messiah. Worship the Messiah. Praise the Messiah. Glorify the Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. And we see that the Father gives the Son all authority and dominion. Right? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Father is giving the Son all authority and all dominion over everything. Like that's what the Father is granting to his Son in this, in this, in this phrase. To sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Again, man, this is kind of foreign language to you and I. Right? We, we, we don't quite understand what it means for someone to sit at the right hand and, and until somebody's enemies is a footstool. But again, man, the way that it would have landed on the Israelites' ears is vastly different. See, in the ancient world, when a king would go off to battle or when he'd send his troops off to battle and they were victorious, they would come back with the names of the king and his kingdom and they would inscribe on the king's footstool those names. And it was an indicator, an expression to tell the watching world, hey, I have dominion over these people. I have defeated these people. These, these, this king and this kingdom cannot stand up to my power, my authority, my dominion. And that's the imagery that David wants to implant in our minds, in our hearts as we think about Jesus, this victorious king. That all his enemies will be subjected to him. All his enemies will be defeated. And when the Messiah stands face to face to his enemies, they're powerless. And here's how we know that this psalm is about uh, Jesus, this Messiah, is that the New Testament helps us out. As As I mentioned earlier, it's... This psalm is referenced over 24 times in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says at the end of his sermon in Acts 2. He says, Acts 2, verse 34. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, quotes this very verse, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We even see Jesus kind of in this, in, in this press conference with some of the Pharisees. And he even quotes this psalm as he's engaging in this conversation. Matthew 22, starting at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, Christ said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we even see Christ ascribing this psalm to himself. And so we, another way we see that this Jesus is a victorious king is in verse 2. 
Read verse 2 with me. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So verse 2, we see God gives us an awareness of the sovereignty of Christ. Yet again, scepter is not in our daily language. What's in our daily language are dogs walking around Arlington County pooping on a sidewalk and we're stepping on it, right? That's what we see in people's hands. But a scepter, like what's a scepter? Man, a scepter is an indicator of someone's sovereignty. And we're seeing that God is saying that the sovereignty of Christ is everywhere. Right? The universe is Jesus' LinkedIn profile. Everywhere you look, point to, the, to his sovereign resume. Every molecule, every atom, every tree, every ocean, every person, Jesus says, mine and I'm king over it all. And there's nothing that can escape his reign and his rule for better or for worse. And so brothers and sisters, that's good news for you and I who are in Christ. Although Jesus points to everything and says mine, he does not say mine with an oppressive mindset. Nor does he say mine the way a bully would say mine. No, Jesus says mine with a heart full of truth and grace. Jesus models for us what no other king would have modeled or dared to think about. Jesus, this victorious king, sacrificed his life so that you and I could experience eternal life. Jesus is not a king who sits on a throne and throws his dominions out into a battle. But Jesus is the king who stepped down off his throne and put on flesh. He experienced everything that you and I have experienced, will experience, and did not give in to temptation or sin. Which means Paul writes, For he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that through Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to this song, Glorious Redeemer, by the Austin Stone. It says, I was lost in sin, held captive by my fear, till your mercy showed your hand reaching near. My God, you came and made a way for me. You made a way for me. My Jesus, gracious Redeemer and friend, there's nothing like your love without end my hope was purchased by the blood of the lamb my jesus redeemer you defeated death you trampled over sin you're the risen king you're coming back again oh god you came and made a way for us you made a way for us no guilt no shame no curse no chains new life you gave Redeemer, my debt is paid. That is the king worth following, brothers and sisters. That is a king worth surrendering your life to and giving your all to. Not the king and kingdoms of your job. Not the king and kingdom 
of your success or politics or education. But Jesus, this victorious king who sits at the right hand, is worth giving your life to. And so how many of you are in this room who feel defeated? How many in you in this room just feel powerless and weak? How many of you have, are keep looking to earthly kings to satisfy you or to help you? How many of you are looking to earthly victories to sustain you? What you and I need is a victorious king who is, in, who is Christ Jesus the Messiah. So verses 1 through 3, we see that Jesus is a victorious king. Verse 4, we see that Jesus is a forever priest. Let's read it, read it again. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yet again, man, we, we see some kind of unfamiliar language happening here. Right? And, and here's what we see. We're seeing Christ, this Messiah, as king in the first half of the verses. And now we're seeing that this Messiah, this Jesus, is a forever priest. Now, how this would have landed on their ear, on the Israelites' ears, would have been extremely confusing. They would understand king and priest in two separate roles, in two separate offices. You're either a king or you're a priest. You're not a both and. But what David is trying to do, he's trying to reorient the categories of who this future Messiah is for the Israelites. And what we see is that Christ transcends every category we have about him. But the question is, who is Melchizedek? I'm sure if I we were to poll around this room, not to, uh, not to shame you, but some of you may have never heard the name Melchizedek before. That's okay. He only shows up three times in all of Scripture. His first appearance is, is, is Genesis 14. His second is here in Psalm 110. And his third appearance, what we're about to jump to, is Hebrews 7. And so for us to understand who this, this future or this forever Messiah is, we have to jump over to Hebrews chapter 7 to give us a greater scope of who Melchizedek is. So let me read some of Hebrews 7 for us this evening. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the high, of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first... By translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, 
He continues a priest forever. Man, I don't know what David's trying to do. This is like when, if I ever try to learn Greek or Hebrews, I look cross-eyed. Man, I think that's what David's trying to do. He's trying to confuse them, but also teach them of what's going on. Where he would point to Melchizedek as this forever priest. And to understand how they would understand priests is that you had to trace a priest all the way back to Aaron, the very first priest. But here we see, based off of Hebrews 7, that Melchizedek doesn't have a beginning or an end. We also understand, or they would understand, that priests had terms. They had timelines. But Melchizedek does not fit into that category. And he's, David's trying to stoke up their imagination of who this forever priest might be in the order of Melchizedek. And so David's saying, hey, there's a better Melchizedek. There's a true and better Melchizedek to come. And so what we know in terms of what priests would do and how they would operate was the role of a priest and what Melchizedek would have done. He was a mediator between God and the people, representing God to the people and bringing the needs of the people to God. Another way priests would fulfill their roles was to assist the people in the offerings of the sacrifices. So here we see Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a representation of this future Christ, this future Messiah. And David is saying, hey, this future Messiah is a true and better Melchizedek. He is coming in the order of Melchizedek. And everything we had just heard about Melchizedek, Jesus is a true and better version of him. And all the roles that a priest would fulfill, Jesus would perform them perfectly. I mean, listen to what this author, Dane Ortland, would write about Christ, Christ as priest, in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, Christ, as priest, goes before. Christ, as priest, continually intercedes. Christ, as priest, has need to, all, to act always. And Christ, as priest, acts in time of peace. There's something else that we, 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 we don't have a chance to read, but you have to understand at the scene of Genesis 14. After when, when Melchizedek meets Abraham, he offers him bread and wine. And we see that David ascribes to this future king, this future priest in the order of Melchizedek, that he is a true and better version of him. And at the end of Jesus' life, we see him offering his disciples bread and wine. It's a meal that we partake, and we'll partake at the end of the serve at the end of the sermon as a reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the symbolism of bread and wine to display his good news. 
That every time we take this meal, which we call communion, we remind ourselves of God's love and the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How in Jesus' broken body, we're made whole. And how in Jesus' shed blood, our sins are forgiven. Meaning this, those who are the furthest away from Christ can be brought near if they believe and repent. Right? The prostitute can be brought near. The liar can be brought near. The thief can be brought near. You and I can be brought near to the Father because of the finished work of the Son. The unlovable, the unsavable can be brought near because of Jesus. So we see that Jesus is a victorious king. We saw that Jesus is a forever priest. Lastly, we see that Jesus is a mighty warrior. Look at verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpse. He will shatter chiefs over, uh, over the wide earth, and he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus is a mighty warrior. Like Jesus is not sitting up in heaven waiting to come back to play a game of Fortnite. Like he's not ready to come back. He's not coming back anticipating how to win hopscotch or patty cake, patty cake. No, Jesus is preparing to wage war against his enemies. Like Jesus is coming back to bust heads wide open. And those who are in opposition to Jesus, both physically and spiritually, will receive his wrath. There won't be a chance for those folks when Christ returns to try to wave the right flag and say, I surrender or create a peace treaty. No, what they will experience in that moment, those who do not believe in Christ, those who have not repented of their sins, will receive the greatest blow in all of history. That's eternal separation from a holy, perfect, righteous God. Listen to what Jesus is going to do. It says he will, he will crush kings. He will judge the nations or execute judgment among the nations. He will shatter chiefs. And at the end of this battle, at the end of this war, he will drink from the brook by the way. And therefore, lift, he will lift up his head, simply meaning that he will win this war. And he will lift up his head in victory. So the question is, why do we need a victorious king? Why do you and I need a victorious king? We need a victorious king who can defeat our greatest enemy, and that's sin and death. Jesus has already won 
victory over sin and death by his life, death, burial, and resurrection. When he said on the cross, it is finished. But when he comes back, it will all be over. We won't experience any kind of sin. We won't experience any kind of death. So that's why we need a victorious king is because we cannot win over, we cannot beat sin and death on our own or in our own power, but we need Christ's power. We need his strength. We need his victory. Why do we need a, a, a forever priest? So the reason why you and I need a forever priest It's because we need peace. Our lives are chaotic. They're crazy. We cannot find peace in this world. But Christ alone offers the peace that our hearts long for, that we need. That's why we need a forever priest. Why do we need a mighty warrior? Because the reason why we need a mighty warrior is because we can't fight this battle on our own. We need him to fight on our behalf. We need him to fight for us. So my question to you this evening is, what, what role do you need Christ to play for you? Do you need him as a victorious king? Do you need him as a mighty, as a, as a forever priest? Do you need him as a mighty warrior? You might need them as all three. Since the rebellion of our first parents, since the rebellion of Adam and Eve, our hearts and our souls have been longing for a king to protect and provide. Our hearts and our souls have been longing for a priest who serves and pleads. And our hearts have been longing for a warrior who fights and conquers for us. We'll find all those things and more in the finish, the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Messiah who is to be worshipped because he's a victorious king, he's a forever priest, and he's a mighty warrior. Let's pray. So Father, we... We need you. We desperately need you. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy us. There's nothing in this world that can fulfill us. There's nothing in this world that can make us whole. It is only you. So God, would you meet us here this evening, meet us where we are, love how your word says that man we don't have to clean ourselves up we don't have to perform for your love but you lavish it on us in christ so help us to believe that this evening in jesus name amen